0: I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. So, Chad, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, who you are.
1: Oh, who am I? That's a great question, Will. Um Well, first of first and foremost, I'm a Floridian, you know, which is pretty damn hard to come by these days. Um are we allowed to cuss on this uh here podcast or is this? Oh like, yeah, sure. we keep it PG-13. Okay, PG-13. I can handle that. Um Yeah, I mean, I'm a father, uh entrepreneur, uh you know, lover of all things Florida, you know, mm. I'm a, I'm about as Florida as you can get. I take my orange juice two weeks past expiration date to where it just starts to tingle your tongue. And, uh, you know, I love everything about this state. And, you know, I kind of have been called a Florida ambassador. I think a lot of people who are new to this state learn about this state from either my show or things I have to say and do. And I think that's pretty
2: cool. You just mentioned the show, and we all know who you are. And we know there's probably 14 or 15 other million people who know who you are. But there might be one or two that aren't familiar with what you do for a living. You want to touch on that real quick? Yeah,
1: let's clean that up right now, right? Well, uh, you know, for the last 12 years, I've produced a television show called How to Do Florida. And, um, you know, it's won several Emmys. It's aired on every major network you can imagine. Um, from PBS to ABC, NBC, Discovery. Um, Now all of our shows go under our streaming channel, Discover Florida channel. Um, And it's a travel show. It's a travel adventure show. It shows people, you know, how to do Florida. And, you know, when I was creating the show, I realized there's so many people who just don't know really what they don't know because either they just got here or they've never ventured out beyond their zip code. And so this show kind of gives them, you know, some of the some of the tools they need to get out and do Florida. Um, It's definitely a family show. The show is ridiculous. I say it's part genius, part ridiculous. Uh, And that's my formula. Uh, I want people to feel like, uh, man, if this idiot can do it, anybody can do it. You know, I've never wanted to create something where it felt so unobtainable for people. This was an entry level to Florida. This is Florida 101, um, and I wanted to keep it real light, real fun, and yeah, somewhat ridiculous.
2: Yeah, but you cover you cover all kinds of neat things in there that are unique to Florida, like the spring diving, um, some of the great towns that we have. So it's introductory, but it's not uh, it's not always too introductory.
1: Look, the greatest compliment I get, get is having a local or a native come up and say, "Man, I love your show." I mean, I get goosebumps, you know, to know that the show is enjoyed by people who know Florida so well. That's probably my greatest compliment.
3: You know, it's so awesome. The show really is awesome, too, because it's you get so many people that, like you said, come here on vacation or something. And then they just don't know. They come to Florida and they know Disney. Right. Right. They don't
1: know all the genuine, like beautiful, awesome things that there are to do in Florida. Well, yeah, if I did a, you know, how to do Ohio or how to do Kansas, Kansas, I might be able to squeak out, you know, two or three episodes. But the fact that we've filmed over 135 episodes, I feel like I could kind of keep going on and on and on. Just touching
2: the surface. Oh, absolutely. Speaking of Florida, how, how how far back does the Crawford clan go? In Florida. In Florida. We stop at Florida.
1: <laughs> well, I'm a third generation Floridian, so I was born and raised in Sanford, live in Lake Mary now, uh, which is kind of, you know, I tell people if you draw a line on the map between Orlando and Daytona Beach, kind of right there in the middle. Yeah. Um, You know, my, my grandparents came to Florida on my dad's side. Uh, he was uh, John L. Crawford. He was in the oil business. And uh, he had a thrifty service station, one of the only gas stations in downtown Sanford. And um, and then on my mom's side, my mom's grandfather or my mom's father was named John Angel, and he was uh, he was a kind of a legendary figure in this area. He was one of the first people to have an airboat out on Puzzle Lake, uh, Saint John's River area, and he was really who kind of really captivated me about the outdoors. You know, I grew up fishing with my dad, duck hunting. Um, That was what me and my dad did together. That was where we bonded. And my dad was a man of few words, but I learned how to respect the outdoors just by watching him, watching how he treated others, how he treated the wildlife, how he respected the rules. And, um, you know, I really learned how to be a man in the back of that boat, watching the back of my dad, you know, cast all day for bass and you know saltwater fish trout redfish snook, whatever we were fishing for and um you know that combined with my grandfather who you know was just a real kind of a uh, i don't know he was an absolute man's man i mean i had so much admiration for him some of the stories he told i knew half of them weren't true but man they were so damn good just because he would talk about the good old days where you know, the ducks were so thick it blotted out the sun and catching bass all day till his arm hurt and just all the stories that, you know, you tell, uh, you know, when you experience really, you're trying to make somebody jealous about they didn't grow up when you grew up, you know? Yeah, but, you mentioned,
2: um, I'm sorry to say that when we, we were chatting off before the, we got on the podcast a little bit about him, that he would basically venture forth as a wade fisherman to take his airboat or a, I don't know if he was ever pushing a Pirou or anything like that, but. He just wade out there with a stringer, catch bass, and fend off yeah, all challengers was, with a forty-five. Right. He,
1: he was a wade fisherman, so he would set out. He would throw an anchor out on his airboat. He'd get out there, you know, no waders on, just tennis shoes, and just start wading in the water. Um, he 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 hand his own plugs. He would make a what we would probably call like a devil's horse, you know, a, a wooden plug, top water plug with a propeller on the front and back. He called him a donkey dick. And he would make those <laughs> things by hand. And that is all he would throw were those topwater plugs all day long. I remember going fishing with him and I pulled out uh, a rubber worm and he, man, he almost just ran me out of the boat. Uh, you know, he, that's just all he fished with. Well, I, I tell you what, I really think, I firmly believe we overcomplicate fishing, you know what I mean? And, and to watch someone like my grandfather just fish with what he knew, he would just catch fish all day long, you know? And I think we think we got fishing so dialed in it, it just, when that fish wants to eat and it's hungry, it's going to eat. And it really doesn't kind of matter a lot of what you put in front of it, especially with our bass.
0: You know, I think a lot of times we see now that the old, uh, I say the old way of fishing has kind of gone out of style, but the fish know yeah. no style. So when that old style went away and people quit using it, it then becomes more attractive because less and less fish have seen it. So you're gaining an advantage by doing it the old way versus the new fan dangled tungsten weights and all this perfect and bounce it only six inches and drag it at a half a revolution, a minute or whatever, you know, that, I mean, people really have it down to a science. And if you, if, if that's your thing and you love fishing that much, that's great. But I, yeah I can't do it.
1: Maybe I've well, it's not like bell bottoms about. and it's like bell bottoms and mullet hairdos, right? They're so old. They're new now. Yeah. And, you know, my kids <laughs> think it's so dang cool that this new haircut, the mullet and, you know, whatever, <laughs>
2: whatever. <laughs> so <laughs> what look are, at me. You know, you, you mentioned a little bit about a couple of memories. Do you have any memories in particular that really stand out that when you go back to your childhood, it's like, man, that was it. That's when I knew this was the life for me. Well, look, living in Florida, I love weather,
1: <clears throat> and I can remember being out in in the woods or outdoors when major weather events would come, and those are the most exciting and the most thrilling times of my life, and you guys have probably had the experience where you've been on the water, you've been out in the woods, and you've had a major weather event come in, and you know those times for me, like navigating that as a kid or a young man, ha- being afraid uh, because, you know, that's one of the things I love about the outdoors is unpredictability. And here in Florida, you know, you would never know when, especially in the summer, when you're going to get caught in a really, you know, could be potentially dangerous weather situation. And, um, I always love that about the outdoors. Um, just the idea that you could go out into a space and you quite, only, quite honestly don't know what's going to happen. You know, you go to, you go to the mall and you got a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. But you go out in the woods or you go out in the water or you go on an adventure and you really kind of don't know. And to me, that's always been what's what's attracted me to the outdoors is that uncontrollable element of, of nature.
3: I feel like that's one of the things that makes a man out of a Florida kid, right? <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've endured like a storm through the woods or I've ran back to the boat ramp full speed through rain that was so hard that I couldn't see in front of me. <laughs>
2: That's one of the things that's missing i mean there was a time where you sent your kid outdoors you go back far enough and it was probably only about one and uh, two and three that they were coming back <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: I mean, you know me and jordan well back kids. then we didn't have apps you know we didn't yeah. know when a yeah. front was coming in you know it was all of a sudden it was just yeah. there you just said hey that looks kind of great dealing with
3: it it might be moving kind of slow and the next thing you're like oh crap that's moving really fast we gotta go
2: <laughs> Heck, man! You wander into chiliota on the wrong day, you might bleed out just from the mosquitoes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. losing pints. So,
1: so who is your biggest influence leading uh, you to a passion for the outdoors? Um, I would say definitely my grandfather. You know, he he. Um, I feel like I have a lot of that inside of me, that drive, and you know, I think you know, looking back, he was a really good man. But, you know, there was a lot of elements of him that were quite honestly a little selfish in his pursuit of the outdoors, where a lot of things in his life kind of suffered because of that pursuit. And, you know, there's a there's some of there's an element of that I see inside of me that I think has driven me and a side that I think has taken me a long way in life, but also a side that, you know, is something I have to be aware of and know that, um Uh, you know, that's, I think early on, I was driven by the pursuit of the hunt and the catch and the harvest. And I think there's there's something very prehistoric about that is as humans, when we tap into that and we experience that and we almost, for me, almost kind of become a different person in that pursuit. Um, I, you know, quite honestly could be a little bit of a jerk. You know, a little bit of an asshole um, in that quest, um, especially early on as a young man. And not until later in life when I started having kids and um, I can distinctly remember a moment sitting in the duck blind with my with my with my youngest son where I was in that mode of trying to get my limit and watching him, but not really watching him. And something really hit me sitting there, realizing that I'm so caught up in trying to get my thing and get my hunt on and get my limit and get my moment that I'm missing this very incredible moment. That's right in front of me. You know, my 13 year old right next to me in the duck blind. And I kind of had a switch there where I realized that like hunting's not for me anymore, it's for my kids and it's about showing them those experiences. But up until then, it was all about me. I mean, I was out there for me. I was out there to, and like when I'm on the show, I'm not a very gracious host when it comes to fishing. Like I want to catch fish. I don't. I'm not about like, you know, letting everybody get a fish. Like I, I want. I want to catch as many fish as I can. And um, so I think there's there's something inside of a, an outdoorsman that that pers- that that pursuit that changes over time. As you get older, things become a little more clear. You've got more perspective in life. And, um, you know, that's what I love about the outdoors. It's given me so much. Um, and I, you know, I feel like I owe it. I owe a lot back to it.
3: So being that you were talking about your kids, is it fair to say that having children has matured you as a sportsman?
1: (laughs) Absolutely, Jordan. I mean, um, I'd still be that idiot scrawling around there in the woods trying to get mine, you know, uh, you know, doing it for myself or the Instagram or whatever. And having kids puts all that in perspective. Right. I mean. And it's just it's just funner, <laughs> to be yeah, honest, yeah, you yeah. know, it kind of takes you funner. back. It, there's so much less pressure Um Gosh, I remember being so intense about getting to the duck blind and yelling at my buddies and just being just kind of crazy. And we all have that buddy who's just out there, right? Just super intense. And, uh, but um, yeah, it's just, it's just more relaxing. I'm out there smoking a cigar, drinking bourbon, just relaxing, you know, taking it all in.
2: So, along a a different line, you talked about, just talked about having the kids mellows you a little bit. But that instinct to go after it, I mean, it's still there, right? That, you know, you, whether it's fishing, you're fishing and you're kind of in the zone, but then all of a sudden you catch, you have a strike, right? Now, maybe you don't catch it on that first one, but man, something just hit your lure, right? Or grab yeah. your bait. At that moment, I think all of us, we've discussed this, this in the room, man, at that moment, once that happens, everything else is gone. It's monocular vision. It's about catching that fish, or yeah. if you're out in a deer stand, you're kind of sitting there daydreaming. All of a sudden, there's a snap, and then everything else goes away. All the senses get heightened. You you feel more acute. You hear more acute. Yeah, I'm assuming you experience that. So here's my with all that background. Here's my question: Do you think everybody has it, or do you think there are people at this point where it just doesn't work that way?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, um, look, I've never been that guy who would read something and somebody, I've never been that person who's like, you know, oh man, we didn't catch anything, but man, we caught a beautiful sunrise and we caught some great memories. (laughs) Screw that. Like I I was like, if I didn't catch fish, I was just ornery. You know what I mean? So
2: (laughs) Chad Crawford predator,
1: you know, I, I think there's, there's different people who have different expectations of being outdoors and. Um, growing up, like I caught fish, we went out, like we caught fish, you know, like we, we, we went hunting, like we killed ducks or whatever we were killing or looking for. So I have pretty high expectations when I go out there and, uh, when I don't catch fish, I do have to kind of like, it's a little bit of a process to kind of, um, uh, uh, Talk myself down and say it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. You're are, still a good person. Are you a catch and um, release guy, or are you? A, I am put a play and release, my man. But I, I
2: one for my team. I, I,
1: I will look. I will bring home what I can eat that night. That is my rule. I, I will not put fish in the freezer, and I will not take more than what I can eat that night. I have a family of six, which is about three and a half bass. Uh, one one and a half redfish or six keeper uh, slot speckled trout. So I know exactly how many fish of each species I need to feed my family. And uh, that's what I bring home and I won't bring home anymore because uh, I've had too much good fresh fish and I just don't like putting it in the freezer.
2: Fair enough, fair enough. So
1: what sparked your interest in uh, television
0: or media in, in particular?
1: A- after, after having uh, a really... Um, I had a great time in that class. I learned a lot, but I goofed off a lot. And the very last day, my, my, my instructor, who was a dear friend, Charles Schumer, he's no longer with us. He passed away a couple years ago, um, unexpectedly, uh, he said, you know, if you weren't such a goofball, you'd be good at this. You've got some talent. And that was the first time a teacher had told me I'd be good at anything. And I left joined the Navy, was in the Navy for three years, got out with the GI Bill and said, what am I going to do? And that teacher, what that teacher said to me stuck in my head. And anytime I have a chance to talk to a teacher, man, I, I just, you have got, they have no, they have so much impact on our kids, the words they say to them, especially something positive. And it had such a huge impact on me. Um, went to full sail, got out and really just kind of started my film career worked on feature films, and then started my own company, making corporate videos. Uh, 2005, we started the Crawford Group, where I kind of shut down the corporate video side of my business and decided I want to make television shows. I had never made a television show before, uh, but it was just something that looked cool, and I wanted to do it, so we just started doing it.
2: So it wasn't a dream to always be in front of the camera. You were more... Behind the oh, scenes no. and, and grinding with everybody else out there, and then said,
1: "No." When I when we first when I had the idea for how to do Florida, I brought in forty different castmen or cast people to. Let me start that over again. When I started how to do Florida, I brought in uh, forty different hosts to cast to be the host of the show. I spent a week and a half trying to find the host you know, Orlando's got a lot of talent, but it's a lot of teeth and hair in this town. So, you know, there was, there was a lot of good looking people, but they just didn't quite have what I knew I needed for the show. And I came home frustrated. And my wife said, why don't you be the host? I said, no, 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 honey, I'm I'm behind the scenes. I'm the producer. I'm the director. There's no way. She's like, I think you need to be the host. You're the, you're not going to be happy with anybody, but yourself unless you do this. And, um, Well, of course, she was right. And we did one show in New Smyrna, and that was uh, 134 shows ago. So it was really kind of a necessity, right? It saved me a lot of money. It kind of made sense practically. Uh, But I remember being in the car on the way to New Smyrna, and my camera guy was like, dude, do you know how to be a host? Like, this is like a big deal. People like spend their life being hosts. Like, what makes you think you can just be a host? I was like, I don't know. I've directed lots of hosts. I've seen lots of hosts. I've watched a lot of game shows. I think I can figure it out, you know? And uh, so that's what we did. We figured it out.
2: I guess so, because it wasn't too far down the road. And uh, I think you've hit more than one of these things. But what was it like to be recognized um, with your first Emmy from the Suncoast chapter of the National Academy of Television, Arts, and Sciences? (laughs) By (laughs) the way, for the listeners, this is not my forte but those are the folks that actually hand out them big old statues. So what was that like? That must've been from concept to recognition. Fantastic.
1: Yeah. It was something I didn't really think a lot about until I was kind of up there. I was like, this is kind of a deal. Like, this is pretty cool um, to be recognized like this. And um, you know, I think it just, it's a little bit of recognition for what you're doing. You know, I think, you know, one thing I've always tried to do is I wanted the show to feel professional. I want my philosophy was local content, a national quality. That's what I always tell my crew. I want local content, but I want it to look national. And so we would do a lot with a little. And because I had such a production background, I could make a lot out of a little, you know, um, it's like a GC building his own house. He knows how to cut corners. He knows how to do little things that gets a lot of bang for his buck. And that's what we did with the show. Uh, We had a small budget, but we were able to make it look like a bigger budget than it really was. Um, So, yeah, I'm proud of the show. I'm proud of the people who have put so much, gosh, blood, sweat and tears. I mean, we had so many really life-threatening experiences on this show. When you have that many shows, that many moving boats, moving cars, uh, camping trips, uh, weather you're just bound to have, uh, situations, you know, that are fun and ridiculous, but also dangerous. Uh, now you've set it up, man. You, you got to tell (laughs) us. Well, I mean, I've got plenty of crazy stories that, you know, in fact I give a keynote presentation and I have a whole section of there, like, you know, uh, times when I almost died. And there's like four or five clips in there where, I look back and think, like, what in the hell were you thinking? Um, uh, season two, we were fishing in Fort Myers. And my favorite fish to catch is a snook. That's like my fish. I love I love snook fishing. And we were snook fishing in Fort Myers. We were going through a pass. And um, we were in a no motor zones or no wake zones. We were going kind of slow. And I was sitting up. It was a small center console, 20-foot boat. I was sitting in that little jumper seat in the front, in front of the the, the the center console there. The captain was behind me driving, and I had just stood up and walked back there next to the captain. I was going to talk to him. My camera guy was off the boat. He was in another camera boat, which is very rare. We're normally, we're always together. At least I have one camera guy with me. And we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, I mean, it happened so fast. It literally, a 70-pound eagle ray jumped over the bow of the boat, Landed, bounced off the center console, flipped onto the on the on the bow, and just proceeded like to beat the hell out of this poor man's boat. And I let out a scream that today I'm not real proud of, um, but it scared all of us <laughs> really bad. And this was right. This is literally months after Steve Irwin was killed by an eagle ray. Oh, I was gonna um, say, you did you scream? Do it that? for
3: Steve or? What's that? I said, I was going to say, did you scream, do it for Steve? Or...
1: <laughs> say that one more time, Joe. I didn't hear it.
3: I said, I was going to say, did you scream, do it for Steve?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that was all on our mind. What happened to Steve? And look, down in the Keys, six months ago, somebody, a young girl was killed with an Eagle Ray that jumped over the bow while the boat was up on step and almost decapitated her. So there was a period where this was kind of happening, uh, you know, and I think biologists are trying to figure out why these Eagle rays are just jumping in the air near boats like this, you know, as a defense mechanism or are they mating? Like what's going on? Uh, but, uh, yeah, we were able to kind of went off to a little Island. We grabbed him and, and kind of pulled him over the gunnel there and he hit the water and, and it was a miracle that he swam off, but he, he swam off. Wow. Um, but I've had so many situations, had a kite miss his mark and like just took out my camera guy, spent two days in the hospital with him, stitches in his face. I've had my camera guy get thrown off an airboat down the Everglades, literally in like an alligator infested waters. Um, uh, you know, we've had just so many lost cameras and, you know, guys getting hurt and just a lot of I mean each year like my life insurance policy just you know kept getting more ridiculous more ridiculous and more ridiculous in terms of the cost but uh yeah lots of crazy times so all the traveling through
0: Florida you've done and the in the uh in-depth experiences you've had have they influenced how you think about what it is to be a Floridian <sighs> Yeah. Say that one more time, Will. So has your traveling throughout Florida and the in-depth experiences you've had, had an influence on how you think about
1: what it is to be a Floridian? Mm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think Florida is so diverse, right? There's so much in Florida, you know, from the Apalachicola area, all the way up to the Panhandle, Destin, Pensacola, all the way down through the interior of our state uh, you know, South Florida, all the way down to the Keys, all the way down to Dry Tortugas. There's so much diversity in our state. You know, I think what I've learned is Florida is Florida's one of those great uh, uh, melting pots that has so many different, represents so many different cultures. And, um, you know, there's so much to see and do. This show has allowed me to to explore like very few have. And so that would be my thing for people is just is just to go a place you've never been, go up to North Florida, go to Orange Beach, you know, go to Pensacola, go to, you know, some of these really kind of places that just don't look like Florida. What you think Florida looks like. Um, I think that's probably had the most impact on me is just opening my my eyes to how diverse and incredible Florida
2: is. So if you've ever driven across Texas from east to west or west to east, if you start out, say, in Louisiana, you get one thing, but you're going to come out either by Lubbock or El Paso. And Texas changes quite a bit as you move through it. So what your version of Texas might be, we all think of as cowboys and whatnot. And I think a lot of people think of Florida as being palm trees and beaches. But somebody who, say, grew up in the Keys and hadn't really left that area has got an entirely different version of what Florida looks like say versus somebody who grew up in Steenhatchee or somebody who grew up in Tallahassee. And the ironic thing I mentioned, the reason I brought up Texas was it actually takes you longer to drive from Key West to Pensacola than it takes to drive through Texas. And I I can't remember this. I believe the distance is actually slightly longer as well. That You can drive through Texas faster than you can drive through Florida, but we don't, because so much of our state is actually underwater, <laughs> people don't right. people don't realize just how big Florida is. Yeah, so it is. Anyway, we talked about whether that kind of changed your perspective as a, as a Floridian. I think that's where we were getting to. But um, as a sportsman, in all the years that you've been doing that, which is actually you've been a sportsman longer than you've been a film film or oh, TV yeah, producer. Absolutely. You know. What have you seen change? You've been around almost 50 years, what, 48 years? Yeah, 48 years. (laughs) Probably hitting the outdoors pretty hard for about 40 of those 48 years. What's changed?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, You know, regulations. I feel like I need a filing cabinet in my boat to keep track of all the, you know, rules and regs and licenses and stamps and permits. And, uh, you know, that's definitely changed. Look, I think all that's for the good. Um, but as a sportsman today, you really have to, you really have to know what you're doing, um, where you're going, what you're hunting season, uh, slot limits inches. I mean, there's just a lot that goes into being a hunter today versus when I first started. Um, but, um, I'm sorry. What was the question again, Jim? I went off on that. Like I, that's I, I all right. No,
2: those are all pertinent. I'm saying that, uh, you know, what's changed? For instance,
1: well, I, I would just say, I, I would just say to add on that, I think just the management. What, what I've seen change is the management. How we manage sportsmen today, how we manage our wildlife. You know, and I think to the better. You know, I think, um, you know, we've done a really good job of managing our resources when it comes to our fishery, you know, um, our, our hunting access, I think more and more, you know, FWC is doing a great job with providing access, especially for youth hunters. Um, you know, I think, I think there's been a lot of great strides, you know, in Florida, if you're a sportsman, there's a lot of great opportunities. I think the, the battle now is really the, the environment you know, and the, some of the environmental issues we're having in our state, you know, some of those things that are really kind of outside of FWC's realm. And, you know, they're on the cuffs, you know, making strides in that area, but these are big, big issues that go way beyond, you know, managing redfish or, uh, you know, black bear population in our state. So these are big, big environmental issues that involve multiple agencies, lots of industries, that aren't going to get solved overnight it's going to take decades to see the needle move so you know that's what i've seen change uh you know sportsmen today are are more a part activists part sportsmen it's part of being an outdoorsman in florida is that you have some kind of activist stance you're involved in a group you have an opinion about something you have your idea why something is broke and how it needs to be fixed this whole idea of conservation is so woven into what it means to be an outdoorsman. Now you can't separate them.
2: No, I definitely agree there. You mentioned something about access. It almost sounded like you were suggesting that access is better now than it was when you were young. I don't want to put words in your mouth because that would be most people's sentiment is the opposite. Oh, you know, the good old days are gone. Do you, do you, I do think that there is definitely more effort, more visible effort to provide access, but do you actually think the access is better than it was?
1: You know, I don't know. Maybe my my view on that is pretty limited just because the spaces that I've always gone and hunted. Look, I'll take Maryland Island National Wildlife Refuge as an example. I've, I've, I've been hunting over there since I was 14 years old. You know, uh, that's an area that when I first hunted it, you didn't need a permit. You didn't need anything. You just went over there and hunted. Uh, but it was the wild west. I mean, it was crazy over there because of that. And, you know, uh, they've had to come in and manage it. And just like they've had to do with every space, you know, in our state, you know, they've, whether it's a lottery system each year, there's new rules and regs of what you can and can't do in the refuge. Um, and I blame all that on duck dynasty, but anyway, I'll digress, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think those rules and regulations have been necessary, um, just cause we've grown so much, you know, there's a lot of pressure on our resources. And so we've had to manage it like that, but, um, I don't know if you're a hunter in our state and you have no place to hunt. Like whose fault is that? Is that because you're not looking good enough and you're not out there scouting and, and looking at public land or, or, you know, I don't know. I don't do a lot of deer hunting and Turkey hunting where it takes big swaths of land like that. That's real outside of my realm of the access to public hunting land. But I know there's a whole ton of resource resources to find it.
3: I think I'd be willing to absolutely say that it's because you're not, even when it comes to like waterfowl hunting. It's because you're not looking hard enough, right? Because there's so many people, you open like the STAs, right? People line up there. Granted, the STAs are a great place to hunt, but people line up three days before. Yeah, it's crazy. But you can go to local lakes or you don't even have to go to local. You can scout or find other non-local lakes and do just as good as you're going to do with the STAs but people aren't willing to put in the
1: time to go and find those places. <laughs> and that's what it takes time. Lots of it.
2: Yeah. Everybody, we, we, I hear that all the time. The hunting stinks here, hunting stinks here. Well, compared to where, if you're, we talked about this a podcast or two ago that if you're willing to get out the checkbook, you can go to different places in Arkansas, Louisiana, and have that dream hunt where they're just coming in for talking about waterfowl. And they're just smashing your decoys, right? There, there's so many of them. Yep. But you paid for that to ha- to, to artificially have that limited access, you know, plenty of food, etc. Yeah. But there's almost no place to go, say, in Arkansas, where you just wander out into the woods. Somebody owns it, and they're not going to be happy you're there. Yeah. Right? It, actually, a lot of places in Florida where we've got wide open public water, and we have more public land than any other state east of the Mississippi. So got a lot of people, but you can't no. say it's not because there's there's not that many resources. They're just not easy. Well,
1: well, we all know those successful hunters. They're successful just because they're tenacious, you know? They're dedicated. That they don't have kids or a family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they have <laughs> nothing else to do but scout, 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 and they're successful and they kill ducks, they kill deer, whatever they're, whatever they're out for. Um, but you know, it just takes, it just takes time there. It's the opportunities there. I just got back from Louisiana or last year hunting and we're out there duck hunting. And I'm thinking like, all this is public land. He's like, Nope, everybody, every, every plot of this marsh is owned by somebody. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me! I didn't think you could own marsh or water. He's like, yep, all of this is owned by different people, different corporations, different groups. I mean, giant just as far as you can see, marshland. It's all blocked off in these squares, and it's owned. Like you, they own the marsh.
2: Yeah, it's because Napoleon was around. Some of that wasn't marsh. It, you could still yeah, walk. Yeah, well,
1: exactly. Yeah, right. And that, that's a foreign concept here to us in Florida to own water or to own marsh, you know, like that's, those are typically open or or have some kind of public access.
0: And that goes beyond uh, even hunting on public land. We have a buddy of ours, Hunter, who did some door knocking, got his own piece of private property to deer hunt on and just smoked a beautiful nine point on opening day of archery season here in zone C last Saturday. So, yeah. What you what you can't afford to pay for in cash, you can always pay for in sweat. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt.
2: They're out there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So in your opinion,
1: can someone who wasn't born in Florida be a Floridian? There's no, a very large fee that's involved in that, and you can make the check out to Chad Crawford.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, Buy yourself a Floridian? By,
0: by definition.
2: <laughs> You're handing out Floridian memberships?
0: By, by definition, it, it would be a, a Floridian is someone native or born in Florida. Yeah. Now, I would say, to me, it depends on where your heart's at. Florida is number one in exportation of coffins because people move here. When they die, they want to be buried where their home is is Florida your yeah. home? Would you want to lay your bones here? You know, how much do you truly care about
1: the state of Florida? Yeah. Mm. That's yeah, a
3: that's a I, great I, way I, of putting it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I would agree with you, Will. I think I've met I met some really great people who aren't Floridians, but man, <laughs> I really wish they were and they're a whole lot hell of a better than a lot of Floridians I know. You know what I mean? So I would definitely I think if somebody is actively involved in making this state a better place, um, then I I think they're a Floridian in my book.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. You kind of touched on that. Just because what's the saying that just because the kittens were born in the oven doesn't make them biscuits. That's I've what, never yeah. heard that, that before. But yeah, that <laughs> argument swings that. both ways. I was born yeah. here. Yeah, sure you were.
3: I was going to say that kind of swings both ways too. Because there's people that I've ran into, you know. And work and stuff and you're like oh where are you from they're like well you know i'm from here but i've lived in florida for 47 years yeah but i know the state of florida way better being 26 than that person that's you know 50 something yeah has known the state of florida
2: no you still you have people that live here 40 years and still wearing yankees ball caps yeah (laughs) yeah i don't think i think there's a formula like for every year that you spent Someplace else, you probably have to spend two years here before you breed yeah. it out of them. It takes a lot of bacon and biscuits to get
0: that. See, out I of guess you know. I mean, by definition, neither one of my kids are Floridians. In fact, in my family of me, my wife, and my two children, I was the only one born in Florida. My wife was born yeah. in Colorado. My son was born in Kentucky, and my daughter was born in
1: Georgia. Good Lord, how'd that happen? Army. 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 Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's about the only way that can happen.
0: <laughs> my wife my wife moved to Florida when she was eleven, so we actually met in high school. But my kids were yeah. when my son was born yeah. when I was stationed at Fort Campbell and my daughter was born when I was stationed at Fort Stewart.
1: Yeah. Thank you for your service. Thank you for yours. Yeah. Well, so, look, I've often said that, you know, I think a lot of people's uh head is here, but their heart's not here. And a lot of people move here for a wide variety of reasons. And it takes a while to like for a place to grow on you. You know, Florida can be kind of a tough place to love. You know, it's not Colorado. It's not, it it doesn't strike you. It doesn't hit you square in the head with beauty, you know, coming down I four or 95, you know, you, you kind of got to get out there and find that beauty beyond the beaches. And I think Florida takes a little time to kind of grow on you. You know, I think you need to have, um, several moments and several, You know, there needs to be some passage of time before, you know, you begin to kind of start to fall in love with Florida.
3: You definitely have to be Um, that kind of person that just loves, like, the cypress swamps. Yeah. Or the sunrise over, like, a cow pasture. You know what I mean? Just the raw Florida. I
2: was going to say, yeah, it, it takes, it's a different beauty, but... Running across the Florida scrub across Ocala, it's a lot harder to love it in July than it is in November. <laughs> um, but it's wild, it's pure. Yeah. Um, we've for several years have done, a, and we're going to do it again this year uh, in in May, May eleventh. Chad, we'd love to have you there if you can somehow carve this out. We do a fifty mile run down the Swanee River. This year we're going to go from Suwannee Springs State Park. We're going to do five days, four nights staying in the river camps uh-huh. and uh, pull out in Branford Spring. But if you want to get a feeling for what Florida, along a, a lot of the way down that river, you can see it all. You can see what Florida probably looked like 500 years ago. You can see yeah. what it looks like today. You can even see touches of what it was like in the antebellum era. Yeah. And it's a fantastic trip. Yeah, it's a beautiful river. Um, it is. It's gorgeous. I, and I find Florida, if you want those Rocky Mountain vistas, we certainly don't have those. Yeah. Um, but even down around Lurida, uh down the Kissimmee River area, um, you mentioned the cow pastures. There are things in Florida that I find breathtaking. Yeah. Especially we mentioned weather earlier. I don't know. I'm not doing it justice and I'll probably bore the hell out of people, but. There are, th- there are <laughs> things in Florida that I you can't see anyplace else that I find that are breathtaking. Um, yeah. But anyway, you know, as a fellow that's been, as a Floridian, that has literally done Florida <laughs> professionally
1: mm-hmm.
2: and is a person that's been a conservationist uh, sportsman for a long time, um, you've probably got a better feel for this than most people. But So what, in your opinion, how do you perceive things in your perception, what do you think the largest conservation issues Florida is facing? What are some of the larger issues?
1: Mm, man, that's a that's a that's a big question there, Jim. Um, Terribly. Asked. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of issues our state is facing. You know, I think uh, you know the, the issue of um, nutrient runoff is probably one of the biggest because. Um, it affects the most people. Um, uh, it's uh, it's one of those issues, environmental issues that makes, makes us look like a bunch of idiots at the national press. And if you don't think that they love picking up stories that make Florida look stupid, uh, you're wrong because they love it. And uh, they love all those stories that, you know, we don't know how to handle the environment. You know, we got dead fish all up and down on the on the beaches, and uh, you know, we can't even. Um, I don't know. They love running those stories, and uh, that's that sounds- the biggest thing we have to get a hold of. Um, you know, one of my one of the shows that we do, Flip My Florida Yard, uh, speaks to this directly. You know, we have become drunk on St. Augustine in this state, this big, giant, lush, green front yard that, you know, a lot of people are chasing is having a huge impact on our environment. You know, it's not a native grass. It's not something that naturally grows here. It requires a lot of water, a lot of nutrients to make it look so beautiful. Um, half, Half of our water in this state goes on our front yards. And, you know, that's just not sustainable. Um, you know, we're projected to grow. Our population is supposed to be over 38 million by the year 270. You know, right now we're hovering at a little over 21. So, you know, where's this water going to come from? Where are these people going to live? Uh, we don't have answers to these questions right now. And we kind of live in a state that uh, idolizes these ridiculous front yards. Um, and, you know, we've got to come off of that. We've got to change the way we we landscape, the way we look at our front yard. We have to use more drought tolerant plants. Um, you know, we need to go through uh, a little mental mind shift in in terms of our ability to, um, save water and use less nutrients so the show is really about getting people to start this conservation movement but start it in their front yard you know most people in this state will never go to the everglades quite honestly the everglades are a little hard to access i mean quite honestly i'll say that again the everglades are a little intimidating you know how do you get down there where's the line like where do i show up like where's the disney ride that takes me through the everglades like it's it's a, it's a deal. You got to really want to go to the Everglades, but people can be uh, conservationists in their front yard. They can start there. That's a piece of land they own. They can control it. And, um, so we're really trying to invite people to start, uh, in your front yard. We partner with um, the department of environmental protection and their Florida friendly landscaping program that was developed by the university of Florida's IFAS program. And, um, It's pretty simple. It's nine principles that you use in your yard that, you know, really kind of bring your yard in tune with Florida's environment. Um, And people want this information. It's incredible. I mean, people, they want to be good stewards. They just kind of don't know how they Mm. don't know what it looks like. And um, so the show is designed to uh, show people this is what it looks like.
0: That's why I don't mow my grass during hunting season. That's why I tell my wife cut down on the grass shavings that get down into the <laughs> you know waterway. Is that why? Oh, you know exactly what, why.
2: You know what my motto is. Yeah. yeah. Um, I hate to break it to you,
0: but you don't have a storm system in front of your house. That's all right. So. Listen, we're not going to talk about that. I'm doing it for the environment. That's why I don't <laughs> mow my grass. That's why I don't <laughs> have I'm, a sprinkler system. We need to have like a
1: mo like a no mow month. Like
2: you're right, yeah. you know, like a no mow May or something. Oh gosh. <laughs> my motto. Well, by the way, in full disclosure, I've lost this battle. My wife hired a yard guy. Um, But it was mow quarterly. And I'm not kidding, man. I'd mow that thing quarterly. And really, usually emphasis was about once a quarter, I had a bunch of people over to my house. So I mowed it. I really mowed it for them. And so the people wouldn't get the wrong idea. But you got to have really cool neighbors and a willingness to endure some lectures from the HOA.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, I find that when you get in those lectures, just to stare at them completely dead-faced, you know, you know, eventually that takes the saps the will from them that you're you're not yeah die. yeah okay but um enough about that but um you're absolutely right lawns not just how much water we're sucking up but all the stuff that we're spraying on the non-native grass to keep Jim, all the, the biggest
1: irrigated out. crop in america grass is the biggest irrigated crop in america that we can't eat You know, we walk on some of us, most of us don't even walk on it. So the show really tells people like, look, look at your front yard. How much grass do you need? You got kids that play soccer. Great. You need a good size yard. You play touch football out there every once in a while. Great. Have a big yard. But if if you don't like pare it down, plant, you know, flower beds around it that require less water, no nutrients, you know, reduce the amount of turf. If you're taking care of your turf, um, you know, and we're not saying that grass is, is all grass is bad. We're just need, we just want people to assess how much turf do you need? You know, what is functional turf and what is non-functional turf and replace the non-functional with, you know, with, uh, uh, non, with a uh, native or Florida friendly plants.
2: Yeah. You know, a well, a well-maintained palmetto stand is actually beautiful. If you let it go, it to look like cousin it, it's yeah. kind of gnar, but. You keep that thing trimmed up in a palmetto stand is, is, is nice, right? Not much more native to Florida than the palmetto takes up a lot of space. Well, there was
1: this style developed a while back where we call it this pig and parsley, where you have the house and you have this, all this grass right up to the edge of the house. And then you have little hedges around the house. We call it pig and parsley, you know, like, and that's, that's the landscaping cookie cutter model you know, and by doing that, we've lost so much biodiversity because we're putting in plants that have zero biodiversity, you know, don't attract pollinators. They're just, they're just sheerly ornamental and they bring no environmental value to the landscape. So, you know, we're trying to change that. We're trying to get people to plant more pollinators, plant more uh, plants that, you know, grow good in that space that don't require as much water. And, um, so it really, really excited about this show and it's jam up we come in there we flip that whole yard in one day 8 hours the homeowners leave and like a massive crew comes in pavers irrigation lands uh, sod uh soft you know all the uh, all the greenery and in 8 hours that yard is completely transformed it's pretty amazing
0: so tell us about uh your uh protect our protect our paradise show i need one of those t-shirts by the way i like your t-shirt <laughs> yeah man
1: He's got a t-shirt on that says protect our paradise with Florida in the middle. (laughs) Well, this is kind of my passion project. You know, I think this is really kind of what my life has led up to this, this series. You know, I told my staff that, look, we've been telling people how to do Florida for the last 13 years. Now we need to tell them how to save it. Um, You know, quite honestly, this show is for people who just don't know, you know, um, who just got here and don't have the perspective that we have of, you know, the environmental issues our state's facing. And so we're going to go out, we're going to bring these topics to bear. We're going to do a deep dive into water, into the corridor, into coral, into our springs. And we're going to feature the uh, Floridians on the front line fighting for Florida. And then we're going to invite people to be a part of it. You know, like I'm not a fan of these, documentaries that just end in doom and gloom. And as a human, you just feel like crap, you know, for even being here, you know, that's not what it's going to be. Um, there's going to be hope because there is a lot of hope, you know, we're doing a lot of great things in the state and we want to highlight those things and encourage people to get involved, be a part of it. We're all here. We're all part of the problem. Let me tell you that. And that's the message. And we all have a responsibility to uh, be a part of the solution, you know that's why that word "hour" is in there because I wanted to be personal. This is our state; these are our springs. This is our land, um, so it's our responsibility to 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 fix it. You
2: know, there are some great stories locally. It just it doesn't get the play; it's overshadowed by Lake Okeechobee and the problems we're having there, or say up around the Apalachicola River, but Lake Apopka. I mean, you and I are about the same age. When we were kids, you could pretty much walk across Lake Apopka. And I don't mean because it was shallow. <laughs> just yeah. because it was nasty. A hydrilla, yeah. No, there, there wasn't hydrilla. There was, there was just I mean, the, so much phosphorus and, and muck. It was yeah. just flat mud. Three-headed yeah. alligators. I mean, but... And and Florida made a decision that they were going to fix it. and And it was expensive. They bought... All the land on the North Shore, all, a lot of the you know, Zell, they bought a lot of Zellwood. Unfortunately, one of the costs was, I don't even know if they do a Zellwood Corn Festival anymore, but it had to happen. You had to stop the muck runoff. Yeah. And then they had the, I'm going to screw up the language. They literally mucked it, scraped stuff out of the lake for 15 years. Dredged. Mm-hmm. Dredged it, yeah. They, 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 they're still pulling shad out of that lake. Um. But lo and behold, we actually just attended a meeting about hydrilla. But the only way you get hydrilla is if sunlight is penetrating the murk yeah. so that the hydrilla will grow. But it's not yeah. just hydrilla. We're getting eelgrass back. And as I understand it, the water quality in Lake Apopka right now is actually better than the water quality in Lake Okeechobee. It, it, <laughs> It really, yeah. you talked about hope. It does give me hope, though. I don't think you'd quite embrace the same strategy because you'd have to buy everything south of Kissimmee to Okeechobee. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and talking about dredging Lake Okeechobee would be, you know, <laughs> that's I mean, an undertaking. Yeah. And, and holy cow. But that's a demonstration that we can do it. It's taken yeah. 30, wait, 90? Jesus, it's taken 30 years. That seems yeah. like a long time, but actually they've turned Lake Okeechobee. It's still not at its target point, but they've largely turned Lake Okeechobee around in 30 years from being yeah. an absolute dead lake to yeah, having bass fishing contests on it now. Yeah. It's pretty fast. Yeah. Sorry to steal the show there for a sec.
1: No, no. I mean, the fact of the matter is our environment very resilient. If given the chance to rebound, it will, you know. And, um, you know, I, like I said, I think Florida is taking a lot of good steps in those directions. Look, conservation is trending. It's cool. You know, 10 years ago, conservation wasn't cool today. It's cool. You know, it's mm, like yeah. what everyone's doing, uh, for the right or wrong reason. It doesn't matter. Uh, Democrat, Republican, it doesn't matter who you are. Conservation is that one thing that's kind of binding us all together uh my kids talk about it you know it's just it's part of our dna as floridians now and um my goal is to ride this wave as long and hard as we can to get as much done as we can before it goes out of style to be honest
3: hallelujah. so if we can move forward five to ten years and look back what do you hope to see as far as accomplishments and the show's impact on floral conservation?
1: I mean for protect our paradise like I really uh is that what you're talking about Jordan just the impact of the show?
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. if you look back, what does success look like if you you, know, you launch the show? It's all about protecting the protecting our state. Hopefully acting as a positive agent of change, right? Yeah. If you if you're starting with the end in mind, what do you hope it looks like? Yeah.
1: Tough I think, question.
2: Tough question. Yeah, I think this is
1: a I, I tell my staff, um, we're giving Florida a glimpse, uh, we're giving Florida a glimpse into the future and, um, it might scare the hell out of some people, but we're showing you a little bit of like where we're heading and we're doing it with graphics and animation and showing population density, water usage, development, wildlife corridor, Um uh, You know, we're going to show people projected cast of what the future is going to look like here in Florida. Um, And it's going to scare a lot of people. But my hope is that it wakes a lot of people up to some of the issues that we have here in our state and it stokes involvement. Ultimately, the measure of the success of this series is that people react to it and want to get involved. And want to volunteer, want to start an org, want to donate, want to be a part of the solution, and take some personal responsibility, and have that impact their life in some way.
2: Hallelujah, man, we I think that's something we all embrace. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we we all seven tons of trash out of Kaluvis. Not just the three of us, but we we empowered and encouraged other people. We're very fortunate to have them join us. But I don't know what the total take about it was. At least five tons. Seven it was, tons? It was, it was a lot. lot. It was a lot. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> a lot of trash. Yeah, no, the unfortunate we, part about it is we'll go out there next year do it all again. Probably in yeah, a lot of the same the places. same exact
0: spots, yeah. I, yeah. I would say almost every single time we went out there, we hauled a dump, an empty dump trailer with us and hauled a full dump trailer out. Yeah.
2: You as know,
3: well as the bed of multiple pickup trucks filled
2: yeah. up. Yeah. I, I hope it's not. I don't think it will be because there was definitely some places that we went where there was years worth of accumulation. So there might be... Forgive the term. There might be some shit back there. But it's there's no way it's gonna be as much. But there's gonna be people that are gonna just know that's where they used to dump stuff and they'll dump new stuff. But I don't think it's gonna be ten years worth of accumulation.
3: I hope not. Yeah. I I would
0: like to go back and see that road that you know we spent that little short road we spent a lot of time on where we got the kitchen remodel cleaned yeah. up out of there.
2: Dude, that was the second day.
0: I know, but what I'm Boy saying Scouts is when, yeah. when we when we left that road at the end of cleaning up all that stuff out there, there was literally not a piece of trash left on it. No, I want to. I wonder what it looks like right now. I've not been down it since we've been through there. Kind of curious.
2: I haven't gone. I haven't either. But those are, I'm sorry, Chad. Those are. We're actually big fans of what you're trying to do and we, we're trying to embrace that ourselves just well and putting people you know together. that
1: and that's what we need we need more efforts like that i mean i think you know there's a lot of people who are taking initiative in our state um you know our state is experiencing a lot of a wave of what i call state pride you know back when i was growing up you couldn't buy a florida shirt unless it was florida state or florida gators or if you want a guy harvey shirt uh now there's so many brands out there that are making a living Uh, selling Florida pride. You know, people are proud to be a Floridian and that wasn't always the case. And I think that's a, that's a good thing for our state. And we need to kind of keep, keep that going.
2: Here, here. All right, man, we've been pretty heavy for a while. You know, where we got to go now.
1: So let's
0: get into some of this. You you talked about your uh, life threatening experiences earlier. Um, But I know you have to have a plethora of, Funny stories from all your years spent in front of and behind a camera.
1: Well, you know, <laughs> my mind's reeling a little bit here. Um, for every show, we end up just doing something ridiculous. You know, I'm in some costume. I'm, uh, going into a dream sequence. I'm, uh, just, just being ridiculous again, cause I think Florida is ridiculous on a lot of levels. And I, I think it does Florida justice to kind of lay that out for people. And it's kind of part of who I am, I guess. You know, when you do a TV show, you take those little idiosyncrasies that you have and you just blow them up, right? So you know, I really like oranges. So for the first three seasons, I literally carried an orange around with me wherever I went and kind of worked it into the show. Um, I'm always futzing with my hair, so I had this giant hairbrush that I would carry with me everywhere. had a name for it, and uh that my hair became part of a character on the show. So one time we were down on the keys and um, we were doing a fly fishing episode. And I, I won't say the captain's name because I'll bear, spare, spare him the embarrassment. But um, he was going to take me fly fishing, and I had never fly fished in my life. And this guy was a very serious fly fisherman. And uh, we're out there, kind of cutting up, having a good time, you know, playing it loose. This is not a fishing show. I don't need. A bunch of fish over the rail. I need, you know, a couple bent rods and some high fives, you know, but that's just not where he's at. He's super serious. And uh, I'll never forget when we pulled up to the spot to fish. This is in Bis- This is uh in Flamingo, and we left out Alamarada. And I said, What are some rules for today? He goes, Two rules. Do everything I say and don't slam the cooler lid. And that was what it was all day long. Just like he was just giving me hell, yelling at me as I'm trying to learn how to fly fish. He's, he's got fish off the bow, but I can't get the dang fly out there to him. I'm hooking myself. I got line wrapped around me and we just had a hell of a day. Well, I wanted this dream sequence where I had this sense of like what I thought fly fishing was going to be. So I was going to go into this sequence where I was dressed up like Brad Pitt and the river runs through it. And I was just, I had all that outfit on and I was going to be there, like just having this dream cast and like this in my head, what that day was going to be. And I cut that in with the reality, with the line wrapped all around me. I got the hook in my neck. And uh, so we needed to shoot this dream sequence, right? We got back to the dock. We're all hot, sweaty. He's been yelling at me all day. My morale is kind of low but I really need this piece. So I get dressed up in this ridiculous outfit. It's right there in front of worldwide, worldwide sportsman. Really nice doc, a bunch of fly fishermen, you know, everybody's got their stuff dialed in. So oh, they have, they have, they have no idea.
2: This is a gag, right? They think that you coming no idea. out there. Legit. I just
1: look ridiculous. And I'm getting dressed <laughs> on the shoreline. I'm getting in all this gear with the hat and the vest and the waiters and the basket, the trout basket and everything, you know, and uh, so I start wading out into the water and there's no fishing signs everywhere, right? You're not supposed to fish right there. It's a dock, or right? It's a working dock. And so I just start flailing the, the, the fly. And I'm, I'm kind of acting silly and I'm kind of being ridiculous. And all of a sudden, like I catch a big barracuda. Like I, I got something on, I'm like, I got a fish. And all these people in the dock turn and they're like, you're not supposed to be fishing here. Get out of the water. And they start screaming at me. But I have a fish on. So I'm reeling it in. My camera guy's filming the whole thing. So I bring this Barracuda in. He's like, I don't know, I don't know, four or five pounds. And then I get up to the dock and like the worldwide sportsman security guards are there, you know? <laughs> they're, like, <laughs> they're like, what are you guys doing? And I'm like, my waders are soaked. I got water in my waders. You know, I just feel like an idiot, you know, all these like Orvis guys are walking down the dock, you know, and uh and he's like, I try to explain to him what we're doing, which makes me even sound even more like an idiot. am like, we're doing this dream sequence and he's looking at me like, what the hell? He's like, guys, oh. pack your shit up and get out of here, you know? Oh, man. Um, So I feel like we're we're always in these crazy scenarios where we're trying to do some antic or something ridiculous in the show. Um, And uh, it it
2: just. So so did they throw you out? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they threw us out. They wouldn't bite. Like, really? Uh, No, sorry. I got a TV show like 14 million people watching. What I was doing.
1: Get out of here! You're bad for business.
2: You didn't you You're didn't steering away the customers. You Get didn't hit you didn't hit him with it. Do you, don't you know who I am?
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> that was season two. I was nobody. Oh man! I was. <laughs> he just knew I wasn't Brad Pitt. I know that. <laughs> wow.
0: So what's what's your fondest memory of the outdoors? Not necessarily your
1: show, just in particular. Um. Well, this was part of the show, but it didn't feel like the show. Um, Season four, I took my son on a canoe camping trip down the Suwannee River. It was the first time I did a real solo trip. My son had just gotten old enough to do this. He was eight years old. And um, I thought a lot about this trip because I knew there's going to be a lot of fathers watching this. And um, they were going to either have a good memory of their dad or they're going to have a bad memory growing up with their dad. And so I thought a lot about this episode because I wanted it to really um, touch fathers on a lot of different levels, Uh, spending time with their son, that father and son relationship, which, you know, can sometimes be volatile and, you know, everyone has their own experience. But um, there was a moment there, it was his birthday where I gave him a, a knife. And just like my father had given me a knife at a certain time, and so he opened this gift up and, you know, he he opens up this little box and he gets this knife out. and He's so excited that he gets a, you know, a, a, a little a knife to have. Uh, but it was just such a sweet episode. And there was so many tender moments in it with me and my son. And, you know, I'm definitely one of those dads who can get a little irritated, you know, when the kids aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing and uh, they're not enjoying it like they're supposed to be enjoying it. You know, Dad. Gummit, I brought you all the way out here. Freaking have fun. Like what's going on? (laughs) Um, and so I, I can get a little irritated. Um, and I, I think I was just really proud of that episode just because it showed, um, just a real kind of sweet, uh, sweet relationship between a father and a son and really focusing on that experience. Um, And uh, so that's probably one of my favorite outdoor experiences. And I'm really proud of that show, uh, just the way it came out. And um, uh, yeah, that's uh, one of my favorite. I was just able to do that with my daughter down the econ here uh, two seasons ago. And I had another just great experience with her as well. Very different. Um, But uh, I think any time when you can spend – look, I have four kids. I love taking all four of them out. Well, let me rephrase that. I, I will take all four of them out, but I love taking one out. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I got a small GINU because I can only bring one kid. <laughs> so it's <laughs> like, there's something about that, uh, given that one child, that undivided attention. And, uh, I think is just really important and uh you know something i kind of strive to do to spend that one-on-one time with with one kid once one at a time like that
0: so at the i know we're going to catch you off guard with this one because we didn't talk about this before we started but at the end of every week we like to do a segment we call the under pressure outdoors tip of the week
3: <laughs>
0: uh, we'll go around the table here and uh just give a a tip and I'll I'll start us off by saying, I I know I've said in the past and I've multiple times that active participation and conservation starts with you and ends with the people you share the great outdoors with. Even if you don't have kids, you probably have a coworker or a friend or someone, you know, that you can show, a bit of your passion to the outdoors too and bring them out there with you and then they see you pick up garbage they see you do things like that and then it, that that image burns into their mind of what an outdoorsman is or outdoorsmen, women and what we yep. should be doing so take somebody hunting, fishing, camping Jordan what do you got?
3: I'm going to say that you don't even have to be in the outdoors, to participate in conservation. We've talked about it, like with Chad. so uh, protect our paradise. We can do things like not water your lawn as much. Like Chad said, plant with more drought-resistant plants, right? Or when you mow your lawn, if you have a storm system in your neighborhood, try to keep all your clippings in your lawn. Don't blow them out in the road where they're going to go wash into our water system.
2: Hallelujah. I've got one that's a little bit more practical, talked about why we needed a second refrigerator to age your game. So staying along that theme, one of the things I find is people are constantly talking about their processor, their processor, their processor. You can do it yourself, but then instead of getting everything ground up in a hamburger and sausage or cube steaks, right? If you got your whole cuts, one of the, the intimidating things about the kitchen is, well, how do I season it? Or you pull up a recipe and you're trying to gather all the stuff. So one, have a, have a stock spice cabinet, but then you're going to find some things that you'd like to use. Simple things. You're going to pull out your roast, you're going to hit it with a certain spice, well, or certain combination. Next time you empty out a spice bottle, save it, take the label off, pre-make your own rubs, right? Just be ready. So the more things that you can do to make cooking wild game easier, the better it's going to come out. I mean, our society has gone so backwards, man. People don't even make regular traditional food with store-bought, you know, chicken or or beef. It's all pre-packaged stuff and crap that we're buying and eating. And I'm guilty of that. But man, when the wild game stuff, make it easy on yourself. Pre-prep things like your spices.
1: What you got for us, Chad? Well, Jim, that's a great transition to my outdoor tip. Uh, My outdoor tip is embrace the burn. Uh, I burn my food. I love the flavor of charred food pancakes, bacon, chicken, hot dogs, marshmallows. Like, there's an art to giving something just enough burn and just enough char to where you really, there's a flavor there that is really unique. And so many people, you know, kind of optically don't want their food looking burnt. It looks burnt. But I would challenge you, burn your food. It's delicious. Burn it just enough. Sear it, char it, whatever you want to call it. You know, there's an art to doing that with a grill uh, where you can just get that burn on there, that char. I think the art is called
2: it. 700 degrees
1: (laughs) often thought like, you know, if I were going to open up a restaurant, I would open up, it would be called charred and it would just focus (laughs) and feature on great food that is just charred. And it's just a little burnt. I I don't know if it's because I don't know if it's because I'm getting old and my taste buds are like done or what, but it, it just takes more flavor for me to really taste something. And um, I just love that flavor of something that's just kind of just a little burnt.
3: I was gonna say, as long as it's not a steak, I can agree with you.
2: I don't know, man. I think you're onto something with the steak, though. What? But I want to. We want to be clear. You're not saying well done. You're saying no, right? So that that is that is the art. You got to get things wicked hot. You got to be patient, and you got to know your times. Meat thermometers help, right? You got to know your time. So when you throw that steak down. And it just, I mean, it sounds like a volcano when it hits the grill or hits the cast iron pan, which is one of my favorites. Right. And you get that. I mean, it's a bark on the outside. Yeah. But it's only what? Maybe three sixteenths of an inch deep. And then all of a sudden it goes into the medium to medium rare real quick. And maybe he's even rare in the center. Yeah. Estelle Cracker would say, that's money, dude.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But I will say I, I I've tried to it's a it's a acquired taste. I've tried to pitch it to my family, and so far, no takers. My eight year old, she she just can't get back to past the visuals. You know, I'm just starting her off on little slightly charred toast. She just can't handle it. You know, my
3: dad used to always yeah. tell us, "If it ain't burnt, it ain't grilled." I think that was to get past him, be a bad cook. Yeah, burning <laughs> yeah. everything on the grill. But
2: oh, is that what this really is? Is this what this really is, Chad?
1: (laughs) Well, hey, I'll say one more tip that um, my chef, Chef Justin timon he's Florida's chef, um, incredible guy, great chef. But he told me something one time that always sticks with me. Um, If it's done in the pan, it's overdone on the plate. And so many people cook things to where they're done in the pan. By the time it hits that plate, I don't care if it's eggs or whatever it is. It's overdone on the plate. And so he was a big advocate of like, you know, knowing that timing of bringing something off the, off the skillet, you know, knowing that's going to kind of keep cooking. Um, but that's something I always kind of keep in my head as I'm cooking.
2: Sounds, sounds like a guy we need for a podcast, food podcast. Oh man,
1: he would, he would be awesome. Absolutely. Set it up. Have that one. Yep. Jeff, Justin Timonaris. Well, Chad,
0: we, we really appreciate you joining us this week. It's an honor to have you on the show. And uh don't you tell our listeners how they can find you and find your show and tune in to the next episode.
1: The best way to watch our content, Will, is um, uh, the Discover Florida channel. So this is our streaming channel. Um, so you have a Roku, Apple TV, Amazon Fire. We have a, an Apple and an Android app. Uh, just search for Discover Florida channel. You can download the channel and watch everything. We have our yard show, our kids show. We have documentaries on there. It's the largest Florida streaming channel out there. Uh, tons of content. And if you like Florida, you're going to love the channel. Sweet. I'm going to go inside and download it.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I've actually watched a, uh, a fair bit of you on YouTube as well.
1: I, if uh, There is like 20% of our content on YouTube, and everything is on this channel. Um. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I'll definitely have to put it on well, the TV. I, I,
1: I didn't do well on YouTube. I, I didn't look good in a bikini. So, you know, we kind of stopped, we stopped doing that for a while and uh, <laughs> went a different route. <laughs> it's
3: all right. I don't either.
1: <laughs> that clickbait wasn't getting any clicks. <laughs> yeah. Well, once again, Chad, I thank you for joining us. And uh, it was a pleasure having you on. Uh, absolutely. And I, I just want to say, I love what you guys are doing under pressure outdoors, bringing to get outdoorsmen together for a good cause. And, uh keep 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 fighting the good fight guys
3: absolutely man we thank loved you having too. you at the pig roast
2: and good luck with the new show too yeah
1: thank
3: you bye-bye